This podcast is brought to you by our very kind sponsors at Solid Point. Now I approached Solid Point to ask if they'd like to sponsor the podcast because I wanted relevant sponsors that architects and other listeners to this podcast can actually use. Now Solid Point are a surveying company providing professional surveying services using the latest technology in drone surveys, laser scanning and building information modelling. Whenever I've gone out for a quote in the past for laser scanning services, not only have they always come back with the cheapest price, but having interacted with a number of other companies, they also come back with the best Revit models from all of their survey data. They're great people to work with. So if you have a project that needs a survey doing, visit their website at solidpoint.co.uk. That's solidpoint.co.uk. And now, on with the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Theory of Architecture. Just a quick reminder that if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at subscribestar.com forward slash theory of architecture. That's subscribestar.com forward slash theory of architecture. I'd really appreciate your support. Thanks a lot. A reminder also that all of the interviews I do are available in video format on YouTube. So head over there and subscribe to the channel and you'll get all the latest updates on all the interviews I do. Today I've got a new format for you. This is going to be one of the papers that I've written. This was my master's dissertation back in 2014, and it's called The New Sympathy. Now, I'd probably change a few things on this were I to go back and write it again, but all of the arguments still stand. If anything, I'd pay slightly more attention to the subtleties of modernist philosophy when making critiques on it, but other than potentially reframing some of the language, all the arguments are still valid. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it, and on with the podcast. The New Sympathy An exploration of how emerging theories in scientific, mathematical, and psychological understanding of the natural world are affecting the state of ornament in architecture. Introduction The Return of Ornament Throughout history, the vicissitudes of style have given rise to both greater and lesser degrees of ornamental adornment in architecture. Variations in the extent of this adornment over time have been attributed to a wide variety of causes, from social changes, cultural and political ideologies, simple fashion fluctuations, and many other influences. But the desire to embellish to beautify, to adorn, has always found a way back into the consciousness of societies and cultures from every historical period. This is once again becoming the case in our 21st century Western world, as the challenges of social change and the pitfalls of modernist values become ever more apparent. We find ourselves now at the tail end of a period in which ornament, at least in the explicit sense, was almost entirely rejected from mainstream architectural practice. The modern era, and the international style of pervasiveness throughout the 20th century, has brought us to a state in which modernism's original values have been long forgotten. It exists now in a kind of default state amongst most practicing architects. Infinite variants on the same themes scatter the pages of architectural press output. Long forgotten in this architecture are the Fordist values originally at the centre of modernist philosophy. 
Rejection of all forms of embellishment in favour of pure functionality was one of the core values of the modern movement. Yet within the default remnants of modernism as it exists today, architects are beginning to push aspects of design in a direction that seemingly embraces new permutations of architectural ornament. There is the sense that dissatisfaction with modern architecture is approaching a tipping point. Attempts to displace modernism have been going on for decades, ever since postmodernism so catastrophically and comically failed to do so. Until the last few years, however, the tools needed to provide a viable alternative have not been sufficiently advanced. The rise of the computer as a design tool is the most significant driving force behind the return of ornament to architecture. Complex, irregular geometries are now easily created by digital systems, which means the creation of ornament is no longer a vast, onerous task of drafting, but a rapid, dynamic, changeable process where the final outcome is often quite deliberately uncertain. Contrary to the message conveyed by the founding fathers of modern architecture, from Adolphe Loos to Le Corbusier, traditional ornament was not meant solely for pleasure. It conveyed vital information about the purpose of buildings, as well as about the social rank of the owners. Symbols, depictions and narratives all adorn historical buildings, but the nature of the new ornament is different. Antoine Picon writes that, quote, the realm of ornament is both about the new type of subjectivity characteristic of the digital age and about the possible contribution of architecture to emerging collective meanings and values, end quote. This statement implies that the direction of causality begins at the architecture. There is, however, a great deal of evidence to support the theory that significant, if subtle, changes in people's perceptions are shaping architecture more than architecture is shaping people. In this investigation, we will consider some of the non-architectural theories relevant to architecture and ornament that are themselves changing, and how these changes might affect their relevance and application in the field of architectural theory and aesthetics. Chapter 1. Science and Natural Understanding in 1608, when Galileo first set out his inclined plane, he began what we would come to call the Age of Enlightenment. Where before only techniques existed, such as healing and alchemy, with no basis of proof for their operation, Galileo discovered a strange and unusual possibility. Some facts, those we call experimental facts, are able to force agreement. Such facts define the experimental achievement. Galileo was the first to create facts that are able to act as reliable witness about the way they should be interpreted. In The Invention of Modern Science, Isabel Stengers characterizes this achievement by defining it as, quote, the invention of the power to confer on things the power of conferring on the experimenter the power to speak in their name, end quote. Ever since then, the train of rational thought and evidence-based proof have driven scientific methodology to make tremendous technological advances and discoveries which continue to this day. 
Galileo was able to prove his experimental facts by reducing the number of variables affecting the experiment in question in order to deduce the existence, or otherwise, of relationships between just two, or a very small number, of those variables. Whilst the complexity of scientific methodology has increased exponentially over the centuries, this core principle of scientific procedure has remained unchanged. The notion that all systems are merely a sum of their parts, and that they can be broken down and each of those parts studied as an entity or relationship in itself, is part and parcel of standard scientific practice. In recent years, however, it has become ever clearer that systems previously thought of as capable of being understood wholly by totalling the sum of their parts contain such a high degree of complexity and interrelation that they cannot possibly be properly understood in this way. The culture of reductionism is gradually giving way to a more holistic view of systems theory. To make such an epistemological shift asks a lot of those whom it affects, as the high level of rational certainty, as allowed in the reductionist model, is not compatible with a holistic philosophy. In The Politics of the Impure by Lars Spoybrook et al., the impure referred to in the title is representative of an incomplete knowledge, accepting of both its known unknowns and its unknown unknowns. This is the state which science is increasingly accepting as part of the normal empirical procedure, but which previously would have been considered incompatible with the pure rationality so espoused by the modern movement. A thinly-veiled motivator of this philosophical progression lies in the increasing conspicuousness of the effects of climate change. There is a sense of urgency slowly emerging from previous scepticism. Where once nonchalance pervaded public and corporate consciousness, now environmental sustainability has become the de rigueur convention of 21st century Western society. The quest for environmental sustainability may well be established, but only more recently has sustainability begun to break from its semantic association with climate change avoidance and started emerging in disparate subjects of discourse. If sustainability is that which can be maintained indefinitely at a certain rate or level, then supplanting the term onto other disciplines draws the direction of debate towards a holistic rationale and poses interesting questions around what it would mean in practice for science and indeed society to be based on a holistic model rather than a reductionist one. But what do these changes in attitude mean for architecture, and in particular architectural ornament? To consider something in a holistic manner rather than a reductionist one we must look at it not as an amalgamation of separate entities, but as part of a single, unified system of matter and forces that combine to influence the particular part of the grand system that we are considering. In an ornamental sense, as Spoybrook puts it, quote, We must resist thinking of ornament as something applied to a plain surface, i.e. to resist the thought of an underlying truthful nakedness, and to see both form and ornament as interdependent. After doing so, we will find matter is constantly active and in formation, taking on form and textural pattern simultaneously." End quote. 
The example that famous 19th century art critic and aesthetic theorist John Ruskin used to exemplify this theoretical approach is that of Mount Servin, commonly known as the Matterhorn. Spoybrook describes it thusly, quote, It works from the inside out, so that it is a showcase of expressionism. While the mountain is being formed, it expresses its courses at the surface in a way that communicates the same set of forces. The form of the Matterhorn cannot be understood without the geological layering of the sediments that channel and guide the forces. The forces operate in two ways, from the inside out, constructively, and from the outside in, erosively. However, the mountain's texture, the wall veil, is surely not simply draped, but encrusted, not like a nakedness that turns opaque at the surface, like condensation, Rather, it is a covering with its own material, a self-draping, a self-ornamentation." This is evidently a holistic consideration. The forms and ornamentation involved are less relevant than the forces that shape them, forces which relate in innumerable ways to the wider system as a whole. To consider architecture in this way very quickly leads to the realisation that almost all contemporary ornamentation, and the vast majority of traditional ornamentation, does not conform to this theory, largely for basic reasons of practicality. Any form of façade or decoration of a pre-existing structure could be considered to be in opposition to a holistic theory. The possible exception to this is the Gothic and Neo-Gothic the principles of which are best summarised by Augustus Pugin's principle, quote, that all ornament should consist of enrichment of the essential construction of the building, end quote. Although even here, whilst the ornament stems directly from the building's material structure, we enter an ambiguous area as to what might constitute interaction of the material with external forces in order to create ornamentation. Does, for example, human design intention count as an external force acting on the material? There are deeper philosophical arguments to be fought out here, but the core principles are clear. A reductionist rationale, in science, in architecture, or indeed in any other field of thought, is no longer satisfactory to truly understand the world around us. A holistic philosophy must be adopted in all disciplines, not least in architecture, where the possibilities for the direction and development of ornament, when considered in this way, are far-reaching. It could be argued that this shift from reductionist principles to holistic ones constitutes a second age of enlightenment, just as the shift from religiosity to empiricism brought about the first age of enlightenment. The first did, after all, take many decades, if not a century, to infiltrate the majority of disciplines, Perhaps we are presently living through the early decades of the second. Chapter 2. From Fibonacci to Fractals The existence of mathematical constants in nature is well established. What is becoming increasingly more evident is just how many places within the natural world they appear. There are many observed mathematical patterns in nature, mostly relating to the laws of physics and chemistry, but in terms of biology, with which we are primarily concerned, the one from which all others stem is the Fibonacci sequence. In 1202, Leonardo of Pisa, known as Fibonacci, or son of Bonaccio, wrote a treatise advocating a switch from Roman to Egyptian numerals. 
To illustrate the case, he used the breeding rate of rabbits, which he noted conformed to the numerical series that now bears his name. 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55, and so on. Fibonacci did not discover this series himself. It had been known in Egypt for a considerable time. The basis of the sequence is that each successive number is the sum of the two numbers preceding it. This means the ratio of any number in the sequence to the next number is always the same, and is given by the formula 1 plus root 5 over 2, which equals 1.618 to four significant figures. This number, represented by the Greek letter phi, and known as the golden ratio, has been used in architecture for centuries. The architectural arguments around possible aesthetic implications of the golden ratio have been heated and often framed by a traditional versus modern agenda, with the defense of stylistic concerns and socio-cultural principles contaminating the core discussion over possible neuropsychological implications of aesthetic perception's mathematical basis. To get drawn into this debate would distract from our focus on the ornamental effects of nature's mathematical patterns. To focus our attentions more specifically and more relevantly, we must consider the attribute of self-similarity present in the Fibonacci sequence. In 1975, Polish-French-American mathematician Benoit Mandelbrot (1924–2010) coined the term fractal to describe shapes which are detailed at all scales. He took the word from the Latin root fractus, suggesting fragmented, broken, and discontinuous. Fractal geometry is the geometry of the irregular shapes we find in nature, and in general fractals are characterized by infinite detail, infinite length, and the absence of smoothness or derivative. Mandelbrot did not first discover fractals himself. Credit there goes to Karl Weierstrass, 1815-97, who delighted in finding flaws in the arguments of others and in 1861, his quest for absolute rigour led to his discovery of a nowhere differentiable continuous function, that is, a curve consisting completely of corners. This was a shock to the scientists of the day, as the established theory at the time was that all natural forms were made up of Euclidean geometries, and hence could always be reduced down to numerically definable parts. Since their discovery, a number of mathematicians had worked on fractals, but Mandelbrot was the first to really explore the existence of fractal patterns in nature. His seminal work, The Fractal Geometry of Nature, 1977, set out in detail his observations. It begins, quote, Why is geometry so often described as cold and dry? One reason lies in its inability to describe the shape of a cloud, a mountain, a coastline, or a tree. Clouds are not spheres, mountains are not cones, coastlines are not circles, and bark is not smooth, nor does lightning travel in a straight line. More generally, I claim that many patterns of nature are so irregular and fragmented that compared with Euclid, a term used in this work to denote all of standard geometry, nature exhibits not simply a higher degree, but an altogether different level of complexity. The number of distinct scales of length of natural patterns is for all practical purposes infinite." End quote. It would be physically impossible for a building to be purely mathematically fractal. The general principle exists as the property of self-similarity. 
The same architectural elements repeated at different scales on the same building, whether they are tectonic or ornamental, can be said to give rise to a fractal architecture. The most prominent example of this is, again, the Gothic, be it medieval or revivalist. The repetition of the pointed Gothic arch at many scales, but always retaining the same basic form, is a significant contributor to the high aesthetic regard in which Gothic buildings are held. Gothic cathedrals, to take the most obvious example, were inadvertently constructed as great, holy, edificial fractal sets. The Gothic was of course not the only example of fractal architecture. The classical and neoclassical too could be said to be partially fractal. When sufficiently ornamented, they have common elements that are repeated at various scales, though because the range of repeated geometries is wider than in the Gothic, and elements are often arranged in such a way that leaves breaks in the continuous language, the fractal effect is significantly lessened. On an urban scale, fractals are also often evident, primarily from a plan perspective in street layouts, especially those of medieval cities. The modern movement, with its reductionist philosophy and resultant international style, reverted almost exclusively to Euclidean geometries. Along with the rejection of ornament was a resulting abandonment of any fractal employment whatsoever, be it aesthetic or theoretical, and hence any hint of an order reflective of natural patterns. These were, after all, machines for living. This has had monumental consequences for psychosocial well-being, which we will explore in more detail in Chapter 6. Fractal ornamentation is very closely related to the holistic ideas discussed in the previous chapter, in that despite their complexity, the operations required to generate them are usually fairly simple. The equations used are not particularly complex themselves, but once they are iterated hundreds if not thousands of times, they become infinitely intricate whilst maintaining the same ratios of self-similarity at every level, based on the rules set up in the initial equation. For the Mandelbrot set, this is given by a complex variation on the basic form Zn plus 1 equals Zn squared plus c. Whilst Gothic architecture tends to maintain comparable self-similar ratios between each change in scale, some heavily ornamented architecture does not. Islamic architecture is the most prominent example. There may be common motifs or forms ornamented at different scales, but the step changes between those scales are not self-similar, and the degree of the scale differences does not allow for more than two or three iterations before the ornamentation becomes impracticable to construct in either direction. For this reason, Islamic ornamentation is less fractal and more patternistic, reducing its aesthetic relation to natural geometries, and hence its aesthetic stature. Chapter 3. Order in Chaos Alongside fractals, there is one other pattern found in nature that has a great deal of relevance to architecture, that of the lack of pattern, also known as chaos. Pioneered by American mathematician Edward Lorenz, chaos theory is concerned with the behaviour of dynamical systems that are highly sensitive to initial conditions, sometimes referred to as the butterfly effect. Lorenz himself defined it as, quote, chaos. When the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. End quote. 
To make reference to previously discussed ideas of holism, one of the key features of chaos theory is that it is holistic by definition. As Peter F. Smith put it in The Dynamics of Delight, Architecture and Aesthetics, 2003, quote, Chaos theory is dynamic in the sense that a particular system like the weather is capable of being affected by its smallest ingredient. Everything affects and is affected by everything else within the system, and systems influence other systems and so ad infinitum. Furthermore, this carries over into human perception. A building, or especially a sequence of buildings, is a complex interactive system in which the perception of one feature is altered according to the form and proximity of neighbouring features and according to the preconceptions of the percipient. Cities are the ultimate man-made expression of the holistic principle, especially when they echo fractal rather than Euclidean geometric forms. End quote. If fractals are nonlinear geometries, then chaos is nonlinear dynamics. Architecturally, chaos theory manifests itself more as the results of random fluctuations in dynamic systems than of intentional design decisions by individuals. Because of this, as Smith makes clear, chaotic architectures are more often found in systems-based manifestations, such as city plans and townscapes. The level of the individual architectural act in the form of a building is merely one iteration of the system. It takes an overview of the entire dynamic to perceive and examine its chaology. Because chaos works this way, the intentional acts of city planning evident throughout history are more often unsuccessful than the purely chaotic, unplanned cities in which no overarching blueprint was being followed. Unfortunately, determining success is not as simple as being chaotic or not. There are plenty of cities that have been very much the creation of a grand plan which could certainly be considered successful. Enter the idea of coherent diversity. Some theorists like to use the differences between the left and right hemispheres of the brain as the primary reasoning behind the effects of coherent diversity. Smith, for example, writes, quote, Within the mind there is constant competition which recalls the clash in nature between forces that amplify differences and forces that dampen them. So in summary, the left discriminates between the parts, the right apprehends the whole. End quote. Quite the degree to which empirical evidence demonstrates this or not is beyond our scope in this investigation. But what is certainly clear is that there is a dichotomy between order and chaos within the same systems. Two prominent examples of this on an urban scale are the cities of Amsterdam and New York. In the planned medieval centre of Amsterdam, the Hanseatic characteristics displayed by the vast majority of buildings are narrow frontage, deep plan, gables facing the street, embellishment of gables to establish individuality, and a high ratio of window to wall. These features were and are written into the planning laws of the city, and even the default modernist designs of today still conform, though unwillingly, to the basic model. These rules provide the order, whilst the variation possible within the bounds of the rules provides the chaos. The residual effect is of an animated contest between pattern and variety, with pattern winning by a short head, enough to guarantee its aesthetic stature. The same effect can be seen in New York City, specifically Manhattan. 
Here, though, the order is provided primarily by the grid street layout, and also by the 1916 zoning resolution, which limits building massing at certain heights. Here, the variation comes from the height and exact massing of each building, which provides the visual chaos. It is certainly arguable, though, that unlike in Amsterdam, where pattern just wins out over variety, in New York, pattern is disproportionately dominant in the contest, so the aesthetic stature of the whole is lessened. Incidental coherent diversity can be seen in all manner of vernacular styles of architecture around the world. There is rarely a grand plan or set of principles to build by, but local circumstances, often around what building materials are available, the size of plots, and simply local construction knowledge and skills, lead to an inadvertent coherence within a townscape. The diversity in vernacular settings is provided by each family's needs as they construct their own architectural iteration within the constraints. This narrative has provided what we often consider to be some of the most picturesque urban environments ever created. To summarise, the implications of this theory for architectural ornament lie primarily in its ability to create sufficient aesthetic variance to satisfy the required level of diversity within the simple rules defined in order to create coherence. In contemporary ornamental practice, buildings occasionally employ chaotic ornamentation within the bounds of coherent situational rules. All such examples are, however, not designed correctly to facilitate the benefits of chaotic dynamics. They exist in the state of a single iteration, enclosing the chaotic dynamism, rather than allowing it to iterate extensively in a wider context of coherence. This is once again demonstrative of modernist principles finding themselves incompatible with a holistic philosophy. Chapter 4. Emergence what exactly we mean by emergence in an architectural sense surrounds the idea of pre-existing rules of design development which are allowed to assume a temporal progression which ultimately leads to a final result. The exact nature of this result is not precisely known at the outset of the process and comes about as a result of the rules that are set, along with the initial conditions and context in which the process begins. When considering emergence, however, there is more than one variant of process one can use, so in order to reach a more accurate definition, we should outline each accordingly. A single architectural iteration, often referred to as a building, can to a greater or lesser degree have its design influenced by, or respond variably to, the context in which it is situated. This context provides pre-existing conditions and constraints, or influencing factors, that give rise to the emergence of the design. We can call this contextual emergence, and it is the least direct of the process variants. It is also extremely vague, as the architect may decide to totally disregard the context when designing the building, in which case there would be zero degree of contextual emergence. With regard to the shift to holistic values, contextual emergence becomes ever more relevant as a wider range of factors are taken into account by the architect. We are already seeing this with the addition of an ever greater number of documents required for planning submissions, such as environmental impact reports, and also the increased take-up of post-occupancy evaluation. With regards to ornament, contextual emergence provides one of the many external forces Ruskin describes in his example of the Matterhorn, as discussed earlier. 
The degree to which the architect uses ornament as a nod, a counterpoint, or a contest to the contextual environment is not decided by rigid rules defined at the outset. The indirect nature of this particular force, as Ruskin would see it, however, makes it totally unquantifiable and entirely subjective. It is not demonstrable of the more direct emergence with which we are primarily concerned when considering ornament. As digital design tools become increasingly more advanced, we are seeing a rise in the use of parametric methodology. Essentially mathematical in nature, but softened for code-illiterate designers into more user-friendly software packages such as Grasshopper, parametric design is bringing about a significant rise in the use of emergent design. The setting of mathematical parameters early in the design process is precisely the kind of rule setting that constitutes direct emergence in architecture. In the time since these tools have existed, the focus of such emergence has been almost exclusively formal. There are deep reasons for this, stemming from the rise of starchitecture to general cultural sensationalism, but they are far too wide-ranging to enter into here. If we look back in history, we can see that this obsession with form is certainly not a new phenomenon. Take, for example, those staples of the architectural history diet, classicism and neoclassicism. The greatest practitioners of these styles seamlessly merged function and program with the great symmetries ever present in classical buildings. There are very many examples, however, where the quest for symmetry and formal order have led to less than perfect architectural functioning. This is not emergence, but imposition, specifically formal imposition on function, and unfortunately it is still very much a problem in contemporary architecture. The downside to formally emergent parametric design tools is that they have fueled the arms race for ever more sensational architectural forms. This can be seen in the work of many so-called starchitects, who continue to put form ahead of function and notoriety ahead of competence, which is ironic since the default modernism they so unknowingly regurgitate, no matter what form it takes, followed the exact opposite principle, so eloquently put by Louis Sullivan in his famous phrase, form follows function. A clear historical example of a deliberate move to emergent principles by an architect was that of Pugin, when he designed his Ramsgate residence, the Grange. Rather than using the classical approach of deciding on a symmetrical form and then forcing the functional spaces into it, which is like stuffing cats into cardboard boxes, he set a pivot point in the form of the entrance hall and arranged the rooms around it according to their function and their required relationship to each other. This reversal in process introduces a greater temporal element to the building's emergence, as the layout and architectural arrangement change with the developing design, almost growing from their predefined base point. It is this formation that gives the building emergence. This links back to the idea of coherent diversity. The rules are the same, but it is the emergence via differences in external forces, such as context and specifics of utility, that bring about the variation. Relating this back to ornament, Spoybrek puts it, quote, What we think happens in space, form, actually occurs in time, formation. The consistency is periodic and rhythmic. Patterns are true expressions of formation as time-dependent. The spatial forms are only the final products of such periodicity, the remnants carrying all of the information as a graph of the process. End quote. What is evident, perhaps obviously, or indeed by definition, is that time is intrinsic to emergence in architecture. 
There are again, however, distinctions to be made here about the scope within which time operates architecturally. The presence of time in a process of emergence is clear, but what is less clear is when that process begins and ends. The definition of the beginning may be considered as the start of the given iteration, i.e. the start of the design process, but it could certainly be argued that predefined conditions exist in the mind of the architect, in the social and cultural context of the commission, or in any number of fluctuating variables that exist and influence the rules surrounding an architectural iteration's emergence. Thus it could be said that we are already in the early stages of emergence for every architectural iteration that will ever emerge in the future. Equally, the end point of emergence is even less definitive. This can already be seen in practice with the increased use of post-occupancy evaluation and building life cycle planning. Again, it could be said that we are in the late stages of emergence for every building that ever was, and in the mid-stages for every building that is still standing. Extrapolating emergence to this degree directly relates back to holistic epistemology, but in this case it not only refers to a holistic spatial influence on a given objective state, but a holistic temporal bearing. Using emergent principles when designing buildings, by the very nature of the process, enables the introduction of both chaotic and coherent elements. Ornamentally, we can define rules where self-similarity and chaotic variation are written into each iteration that generates the architectural form. The use of emergence brings together principles of holism, fractal geometry, coherent diversity and chaos in one highly adaptable system. The architectural profession is only just really beginning to take advantage of this possibility as digital parametric tools become ever more advanced. It may be the case that in years to come, the architect will not arrange forms into architecture him or herself, but will be the writer of rules and the definer of parameters by which a computer will then grow the building mathematically. We're already seeing this with the use of parametric software where the architect defines a series of mathematical instructions and a form is generated, but it stops early on in the process once a certain level of complexity is reached so that the design can be finished off manually. In the gradual move to holistic values in architecture, ever more variables will be added to the list of input parameters. First it was solar models, then wind simulations, then energy use, then crowd behaviour and traffic modelling. Soon it may include economic influence, biodiversity effects, resource consumption, recyclability, psychoanalytic effects, data collection potential, advertising potential, flood risk going on centuries, and all manner of other variables, all of which could be added, given the right data and the right form, into a computer program that would provide ever less room for manoeuvre by the architect in a building's design. The use of emergence allows buildings to much more closely, both architecturally and ornamentally, apply the same principles found in the natural world to the built environment. Vacant biomorphic form finding, however, does not display the depth required to aid in bringing about a change in architectural principles. As Gottfried Semper, 1803-79, put it, quote, We should apply the methods of nature, not imitate nature. End quote. Chapter 5. Materiality, Pattern, and Texture There is a disconnect in architecture and architectural ornamentation, particularly in contemporary practice, between formalism 
and materialism. As discussed in the previous chapter, digital emergent and parametric tools have the power to generate complex forms like never before, but the key point to emphasize here is that these forms are entirely abstract. They exist in a digital state, a series of grey by default volumes represented on a screen, entirely void of any materiality. Pure formalism creates mere moulds, awaiting matter to be fitted into their negative forms, as if the made-of can be separated from the it. Equally, the opposite positions also present difficulties. As Spoybrook puts it, quote, Materialism generally leads to a theory of building or construction in which everything is driven by the connections between the building materials, their structural properties, and their expression as such, rather than a theory of architecture, end quote. Semper took a middle ground position of abstract materialism, seeing matter as occupying fields of activity, as clustered by and grouped with technical and aesthetic forces. The similarities between this and Ruskin's example of the Matterhorn are clear. The forces involved in a material's formation are as important, if not more important, than the forms they take. But Semper saw a closer link between techniques and pattern than Ruskin did. Semper's theory was very close to expressionism, in that the techniques constantly probe the capacities of materials, and materials, with all their potential, are constantly on the lookout for new techniques. Ruskin's theory was, as put by Spoybrook, quote, Structure is pushed outward, but as it is exposed, it transforms, like crust on molten lava, or the canopy of a tree, or the texture of a mountain. It has depth, though not one of space, but more of surface, which is exactly the definition of texture. End quote. We have already touched on this theme earlier on. But what we must consider are the differences in how materials are able to transform and interact in transition zones and in what way that affects their ornamental properties. The characteristic of coherent diversity, as discussed earlier, has been a well-established principle of aesthetics for hundreds of years. Sometimes referred to as uniformity amidst variation, or as Owen Jones, 1809-74, put it, quote, See how varying the forms and how unvarying the principles. End quote. Relating this to pattern, consider then two examples of coherent diversity the snowflake and the drying mud puddle. It is common knowledge that snowflakes, as so beautifully depicted in Bentley and Humphrey's 1931 book Snow Crystals, are all unique. Every single one is generated from the same set of chemicals and physical processes but due to chaos, no two are the same. More to the point, though, they are not the result of some sort of meteorological ice mould into which water is poured and then freezes, but they are growths. Growths of crystals upon crystals upon crystals, all beginning with the minutest speck of dust imaginable and just a few water molecules. The crystal structures branch out from their central point into a hexagonal pattern. The other example, the drying mud puddle, operates in the opposite direction. As the sun evaporates away moisture, the mud shrinks and cracks into a tessellated pattern of polygonal tiles. The configuration begins as a whole and breaks into constituent parts. The key difference here is that the mud tiles are defined entities in themselves. Their outlines limit their extent, an ever-decreasing extent as more cracks appear. The snowflake, however, is only loosely defined by its hexagonal shape, 
There is no border limiting its growth, only a dashed line of approximate dimension. There are two different models for patterned ornament that these phenomena present. Each example undergoes a transition from one material state to another, but both operate internally, within the material itself, as the result of external forces and internal properties combined. The difference is in the dimensionality of the change. Using the same example, Spoybrook summarises how these differentiating models relate to ornament. Quote, The ice crystal starts with the lines that multiply into a surface. The mud tile begins with a clay surface breaking down into a network of lines. In each case, there is a passage from one dimension to the other, but they occur in opposite directions. The snow crystal moves from a lower dimension to a higher one, the tile from a higher one to lower. The latter, an encrusted pattern we will call tessellation, consists of a system of outlines, the cracks analogous to what we know in mosaic patterns as joints. The former proceeds by materialising not the surface patches, but the lines in between, the centre lines, which branch, weave, nest or otherwise multiply into a surface, a system of networked ribbons. So as ornamental systems, the two modes of multiplication, of moving between figures and configurations, are antipodal. The tessellated breaks, self-tiles, into polygons, because only polygons can fill a closed surface while the ribboned operates by variable curving and branching ribbons that multiply into some variable interlacing group. End quote. These separate approaches, which became separate schools of design with greatly differing evolutions, do not hold equal influence in the world of 21st century architecture. Weaving or ribboning is directly related to the emergence of the previous chapter, and has almost died out with the effective monopoly that default modernism has on contemporary architecture. Its principles are simply not compatible with modernist design philosophy. Tessellation, however, has undergone a new renaissance as dissatisfaction with pure modernism has led architects to seek a richer narrative, but what has developed is a corruption of that already flawed concept of pure materialism. Default modernism has merged with a kind of disconnected materialism, oxymoronic as that term may be, to form a race of multi-hypocritical mutant buildings, the kind regularly spat out by the architectural media, much to the disinterest of most observers. These buildings display so many conflicting ideologies, it is hard to consider just one without relating it to all the others. But for the sake of this investigation, we shall concentrate on the aforementioned disconnected materialism as it relates most closely to the state of ornament in contemporary architecture. There are two general theories of ornament that are much more well known than Ruskin's third way. One is the undraped skin that exposes the naked structure to the world, waving the modernist flag of transparency, either literal or phenomenal. The second is a theory of drapery, of draping as a separate act afterwards, which keeps the structure naked underneath the cloth without any transformation. It is merely a postmodern mask. The dissatisfaction with pure modernism has led to a widespread adoption of the latter theory. Within the mud-puddle confines of a defined Euclidean geometry, the surface, often with already functional sublayers, is broken up by application of a specified material medium, 
the patterns and textures of which attempt in vain to hide the vacuous utility of that over which it is draped. Once again, Spoybrook has much to say on the subject. Quote, In the 20th century, we saw ornament replaced by texture, such as the use of natural textures or less industrial craft techniques that left traces on the surface of the object. This was not an improvement. In fact, it has made matters worse. The care necessary in design, or what Ruskin calls the tenderness of art, has been obscured even more, because now the material, and not the design, takes responsibility for the sympathetic relationship, leading to a naturalism without grammar, incapable of connecting the life of matter to the form of the object. The sympathy is not in the architecture, but all in the building material. End quote. We see so many examples these days of plastic-clad city office blocks or metal-clad galleries or timber-clad residential buildings, but the grain in the timber never in any way informs the tessellated geometry of the building's cladding system. It merely replaces the sympathy the design lacks with a psychology of naturalism. Psychology is where all these issues become most relevant and reach their greatest importance in terms of where ornament's definitive influence lies. It is to psychology that we must now turn. Chapter 6. Psychology, Biomorphism and Cruelty To quote British neurobiologist Semir Zeki, no theory of aesthetics that is not substantially based on the activity of the brain is likely to be complete, let alone profound. All visual art is expressed through the brain and must therefore obey the laws of the brain, whether in conception, execution, or appreciation. End quote. It may seem obvious to connect aesthetics to the fringes of neurobiology. After all, what are aesthetics if not simply perceptions of electrical signals entering the grey matter of a homo sapiens? The scientific approach to aesthetics began with the work of Wundt and Fechner from 1874 to 1876. They equated aesthetic pleasure with the level of arousal produced by visual stimuli. Fechner's suggestion was that, quote, the fundamental principle of aesthetics may be briefly summarized by saying that human beings, in order to enjoy the contemplation of some object, require to find therein a kind of unified variety. End quote. Unified variety is exactly the same idea as the principles of coherent diversity or uniformity amidst variation we have previously discussed showing that scientists develop very similar theories in this subject to those coming from the artistic professions. To enter into a detailed examination of the history of aesthetic and environmental psychology is beyond the scope of this investigation, but we must certainly consider carefully the implications of neuropsychological theories of aesthetics on ornament in architecture. It is a well-established fact that exposure to nature has a wide variety of psychological and biological benefits. Evidence has shown, for example, that patients in hospitals with windows that look out onto trees or greenery recover more quickly and are less likely to return to hospital with complications. Scientists have yet to delve deeper into this area of research in order to find out what exactly it is about nature that causes this, and what the relative effects are of different natural phenomena. 
To do this would quite possibly reveal insights into environmental psychology that could be implemented by architects and designers in order to create even more strongly their desired effects. There is of course a danger here, however, of adopting the outdated reductionist model of science in trying too hard to split nature's aesthetic and psychological effects into parts. No matter what the influence of any given phenomena, it is undoubtedly a holistic matter and must be considered accordingly. It is certainly arguable that the wider reason for nature's effects on human psychological well-being is that it taps into visceral evolutionary responses of the brain, responses that remain a core part of our neuropsychology, but which have vastly shifted in practical relevance since the establishment of an industrialized civilization and wide-scale urbanization of humans as a species. We may no longer be roaming the savannas of Central Africa, but our brains evolved in that context, and to exist in that environment, so it is of great importance that when considering how we design the environment we inhabit now, we take into account how our brains are likely to be affected. In considering designs from the perspective of neuropsychology, and in knowing that the presence of nature enhances well-being, we can begin to use ornament as a means of recreating the effects of exposure to nature, but through an architectural medium. In the tessellation versus ribboning dichotomy discussed earlier, ribboning as a design philosophy, when applied, often results in forms with many vegetal connotations. This is not down to direct imitation, but a result of the principles on which ribboning is based. In applying these principles when designing ornamented architecture, the buildings and structures that emerge from the process will more often than not display the same vegetal characteristics. However, not all ornament needs to appear vegetal in order to have the same effects on psychology. In applying the same principles, ornamentation may be generated that does not directly resemble biological organisms of any kind, but because those principles are the same, the arrangement of that ornament will bring about the same psychological benefits. Contemporary architecture's proclivity to imitate biological forms is increasingly prevalent. It is interesting to note the particular affection that architects and designers seem to have for biomorphic imitation over other variants of natural phenomena. The number of examples displaying geomorphic, meteomorphic, aeromorphic, or even igneomorphic forms is far fewer. It is certainly arguable that our fondness for biology is down to the degree to which we can relate to it, existing as it does within the same small astrophysical space that we do, the biosphere. For the sake of this investigation, I will include all naturally inspired forms in the term biomorphic. In architectural terms, the recent fashion for biomorphism has come about primarily as a result of two major sociological and cultural factors. The first is the rise of environmentalism and the quest for sustainability, or as a cynic might say, the desire by a client to appear as if they care about sustainability. The second is a combination of advancing digital design tools and the exponential sensationalist war of radical form finding. Most architects do not create biomorphic forms because they know their neuropsychological value, but because they consider them to look cool. This creates a dilemma of values as to how we are to consider such vacant biomorphic form finding. 
Whilst ideally all biomorphism would arise as a result of architects and designers implementing the naturally derived principles we have established as positive in previous chapters, there is a greater good argument. The positive effects of biomorphism, even if abstract, outweigh the degree to which they are gormlessly derived. There is a critical distinction to be made here, which is between biomorphic tectonics and biomorphic ornamentation. The latter is almost non-existent in contemporary architecture, except of the tessellated mud puddle variety, which we have already established is less demonstrative of progressive principles. The first, biomorphic tectonics, is the kind to which almost all contemporary biomorphism belongs, which is unsurprising given the monopoly default modernism still has, even on biomorphic architecture. This can be seen in many examples of contemporary architecture. All these examples seek is sensationalist affect and notoriety, but in using biomorphism they at least sometimes marginally contribute to increased neuropsychological well-being of those who encounter them. Unfortunately, however, this is not always the case, because most examples are still overwhelmingly Euclidean, not fractal. The second of the two types, biomorphic ornamentation, of the non-tessellated growth kind, as found in snowflakes, has much greater neuropsychological effects, as it is inherently fractal, chaotic, and emergent by definition. Having these characteristics allows biomorphic ornamentation to be applied to a Euclidean form and have a much greater aesthetic effect than absence of ornamentation on a biomorphic form. Note we cannot use a fractal form as the opposition to Euclidean in this case, as in being fractal it would be the root of its own ornamentation. This can be seen by contrasting the United Nations Peace Park building, Chengju, with the Palace of Westminster. Modernism, again, must take much, if not all, of the blame for the current state of ornament in architecture. In the early 20th century, art ran off with ornamentation and has not yet returned the favour. John Ruskin, once again, has much to say on the matter. Quote, No, it was an advised word, that detestable ornament of the Alhambra. All ornamentation of that lower kind is preeminently the gift of cruel persons, of Indians, Saracens and Byzantines, and is the delight of the worst and cruelest nations, Moorish, Indian, Chinese, South Sea Islanders, and so on. I say it is their peculiar gift not observe that they are only capable of doing this, while other nations are capable of doing more, but that they are capable of doing this in a way which civilised nations cannot equal. The fancy and delight of eye and interweaving lines and arranging colours, mere line and colour, observe without natural form, seems to be somehow an inheritance of ignorance and cruelty, belonging to men as spots to the tiger or hues to the snake. I do not profess to account for this, I point it out, and you will find it true if you look through the history of nations and their acquirements. I merely assert the fact. End quote. Once you get past the racism in this paragraph, we can see what Ruskin is saying, that cruelty is innate to abstraction, not to specific peoples or nations. As Spoybrook puts it, quote, The main issue of design is the choice between cruelty and tenderness. There is no other. End quote. And, quote, Adolf Luz had it the wrong way round. Cruelty and criminality lie not in ornament, but on the contrary, in its absence. End quote. 
We can see now that the abstraction, utilitarianism, and nakedness or drapery espoused by variations of modernism fall definitively into the realms of cruelty. It is interesting to wonder whether, if the research that proves the benefits of exposure to nature was around at the start of the 20th century, even if it was reductionist, modernists of the day would have taken it on board, and an alternative to modernism would have developed. As it were, the machines for living had their way with the world. What is worse is that today developing countries are emulating modernist development patterns all around the world, even though modernism has failed in developed nations, proving to be an unsustainable model of living and of aesthetics. As Spoybrook puts it, quote, the bare object has a neurological hotline to the bare mind. End quote. If we are to develop a sustainable model of aesthetics, it must be based on the empirical findings of neuropsychology, which is precisely where a great deal more research is required in this area, and particularly in the field of environmental psychology, which covers a broader range of psychological interactions with our built environment. Once this research begins to bring results, there will no longer be any excuses for the continued reproduction of modernism's failures. An architecture and an ornament based on holistic scientific understanding will finally be possible. Conclusion The New Sympathy in this investigation, we have sought to explore new ways of thinking about architecture and architectural ornament based on principles that have been largely forgotten in the past century, but which are now on the verge of returning to architectural discourse. The dissatisfaction with modernism and the desire for change has led architects and designers to become lost within themselves and within their profession. Direction is needed, and the principles outlined here when used together, provide a clear and comprehensive route in which we may travel, so a truly sustainable aesthetics can develop for the first time in well over a hundred years. We have seen that a shift in scientific perception, from a reductionist empiricism to a holistic one, can bring about an overarching change in philosophy and consideration when it comes to systems theory. We have seen that fractals, as the mathematical root of natural phenomena, can provide rules for the proliferation of an architecture and ornamental regime intricately intertwined and inseparable from each other, based on the same codes, both literal and moral. We have seen that chaos is intrinsic to the diversity of the natural order, whilst consistency in type provides a loose framework for coherent diversity to balance order and disorder into a natural harmony. We have seen that emergence can provide the basis of formal and functional design development, just as the natural world grows and responds to ever-changing forces from a holistic set of systems. We have seen that patterns must be the result of material interaction and transition between zones, producing textures also based on internal and external forces as a kind of expressionism of materiality. And finally, we have seen the great importance of psychology in linking all of these principles together into an aesthetic perception that has empirically demonstrable benefits to psychological well-being of those who enjoy its pleasures. Through the application of these theories to architectural practice, 
we can create a new sympathy in our built environment that will play a significant role in bringing about a society that is not only sustainable environmentally, but also aesthetically, and seeks to transcend variations in stylistic preference and fashions through reaching a state of harmony with the visceral psychology that has evolved and remains within us. Thank you very much for listening.